0: All right, we should be live. This is uh, Adam Taggart, CEO and founder of Wealthion, welcoming you to Wealthion here. We'll be in conversation today with Peter Bookvar, Chief Investment Officer of Bleakley Financial Group and editor of The Book Report, who very kindly agreed to join me this week. I kind of called an audible on him. Um, We were going to record later in the day. I asked if he could come on earlier and do this live. He very kindly agreed. We had to work through a couple of technical issues to make that happen. For those of you that have been waiting a few minutes for this to start, thanks for your patience. Uh, but we're here. Peter, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks, Adam. Appreciate having me on.
0: All right. Um, well, look, we'll uh, we'll have a great discussion if there's time. Then uh, near the end, I, if you're all right, I'll, I'll pull a couple of questions from the live chat. We can do a little live Q and A because I know we have some folks who uh, have been looking forward to having you on the program and have some questions they'd love to hear you address. Um, very quickly, um, let me get to the question. I always like to kick these, um, interviews off with, let me just read the, uh, the intro that I had prepared, uh, and we'll go right in. Um, here's the intro that I would have read off a teleprompter folks, but you get the joy of seeing me read it off a sheet of paper here. Now, um, the bulls are feeling increasingly confident these days. The S and P is up 11% and the NASDAQ. And I had to check this number is up 28% since the start of the year and the speculation is that the most anticipated recession in history uh, may bypass us. Now, that narrative is suddenly springing up everywhere, Uh, but the macro data continues to look grim and hardly merits such optimism, at least not yet. So which is it? Do sunnier or darker days lie ahead? We're gonna dig into that here with Peter. Um, All right, Peter, so on our way into talking about that, um, very quickly, just to kick us off, a general question I always like to ask you at the beginning, what's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets?
1: Well, let me just say that the market's rallying because no one wants to miss the Fed is done raising rates rally. That is what's helping the market. Uh, it's not because of the economic data. Uh, yes, we did have a, a pretty robust Friday payroll number, but there are plenty of holes in it that uh, I don't think itself the headline number is, is carrying weight. If you break down the U.S. economy, housing is essentially in a recession in terms of the pace of transactions. Uh, The U.S. manufacturing is in a recession. If you look at consumer spending, consumers are spending a lot on travel, leisure, entertainment, bars, restaurants. uh, But that's about it. They're not. Well, I should say they're spending money on food, going to the drugstore and and beauty products. But uh, other uh, goods, they're not really spending anything at all. Electronics, furniture, jewelry, and the sort—even uh, yeah. big, big it, items like
0: Sorry to interrupt, but Wolf, uh, Wolf uh, Richter uh, refers to the whole travel boom right now as revenge travel, as really just trying to make up for you know lost time during COVID. I, I love that term.
1: Yeah, I mean th- that—that's certainly the case, and just also a, a shift in in spending habits. It's you—you know, you, you buy you buy, goods don't durable goods don't need to be replaced every single year. So it's just, okay, I already I already bought things from my home. I already bought uh, an exercise bike and a deck and a new bathroom. Uh, I'm not going to repeat that every single year. And particularly uh, electronic products too, like computers and cell phones, they're not being upgraded uh, at the same pace that we knew historically, but also people just got new ones just a couple of years ago. Uh, so yes, it is revenge uh, uh, travel, but it's not just travel. It's just going to a live event, it's going to a a concert. I mean, here we are into June, Live Nation has sold more tickets year to date than they did all 2019. So it's just going out and and doing the experience thing that um, I I think is sort of captured that. Even also just going out for dinner, which not necessarily travel, but it's just being social again. So it's more that I I believe. and that has been a, a good part of the economy. Then look at capital spending. It, it's really slowing down. Uh, you know, Outside of big cap tech spending a lot of money on NVIDIA chips and, and their AI rollout, uh, tech spending in the aggregate uh, is slowing down. CDW, which is one of the major uh, distributors, <coughs> excuse me, out there with a <coughs> couple of hundred thousand uh, different customers out there selling everything between software, hardware, uh, and the like, uh, they're seeing, they, they expect um, IT spending to actually decline this year. But also with earnings growth uh, declining now, that then follows uh, a reduction in capital spending too. So to me, there are many bright spots in the economy, but this doesn't mean that we're sort of in this deep recession, because even if we're growing, call it a half to 1%, that doesn't feel much different than no growth or uh, a contraction of one percent. It still feels kind of muddied.
0: All right, so we're we're kind of in the muddy m- muddy phase here. Um, I, I want to get to in this discussion, kind of your odds you place on a recession coming this year. You know, do you, where do you fall in the hard, soft, no landing you know outlook? Um, a couple of things though. First, real quick question. Um, so we're, we're seeing this spending on travel and and most of the things you listed off there that people are spending on right now are services, their experiences, right? Um, Well, someone's trying to call me. That's that's the danger of doing a live uh, live event. Um, So, uh, uh, you know, when we look at at the inflation story right now, um, yes, CPI is coming down. We we are disinflating, um, but the inflation uh, that still remains, you know, and we're still near 5% is really shoved onto the services side of things. So it's really funny when like, I just wrote an article yesterday, or, or we had a big Twitter discussion yesterday about the sandwich shop in my area, that if you go buy a BLT there, it costs you 34 to $36, depending upon what size tip you pay them when they turn the little kiosk around and ask them to, right? So like, why with a lot of the sort of sluggish, you know, economic growth stats that you just mentioned. Like, why are people so willing to be spending so much on services right now? You know, we see things like the consumer debt going through the roof. Right, it was beginning to get paid off during the pandemic, but then it, it, it shot back to record highs. We see a huge decline in savings rates. Like, why? Are, why do you think people are are willing to be spending so much right now on services? Is it You know, is it because the economy is stronger, the consumer is stronger than maybe we think? Or is there a different reason?
1: Well, two things. As we talked about, they're spending less on other things. So they're prioritizing their spend and food is one of them. But also wage gains, while still uh, has trended below the rate of inflation last couple of years, uh, average hourly earnings year over year are running basically double the pace of pre-COVID. I mean, the 20 years leading into COVID, average hourly earnings on a year-over-year basis was about 2.5%. And we got up above five percent a a few months ago. Now we're trending more like four and a half. So that is a quicker pace uh, of wage gains, albeit still below the rate of inflation. But uh, unfortunately, people are spending that kind of money. But if you dig deeper, you look at some of the publicly traded uh, food companies like a Canagra, which full disclosure we own, uh, and General Mills and Kellogg's and some other. Uh, food companies, they've they're actually losing volume from uh, as a result of the sharp rise in pricing. Uh, you you've seen that also in in other uh, Pepsi, for example, too, and other uh, consumer non-durables like even Proctor, where prices have far uh, gone up to the point where volumes are now declining. So they're spending that kind of money for a sandwich, but you don't necessarily know what the traffic is. Home Depot, for example, talked about you know, sales went up, but traffic trends are down.
0: Okay, so just to make sure this is really clear for folks, you're, you're saying sales volume measured in dollars is going up, but that's more reflective of the increase in the sticker price than it is actual additional transactions. Correct. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, so that, that may be masking what's going on here. And again, you said this is sort of a, a muddy time, right? Where, you know, not every every indicator maybe be be the way it looks on the surface, you're gonna have to dig deeper to to really get a true understanding of what's going on. So I want to talk here about um, comments that you've made recently, Um, just looking at your Twitter this morning, and you made the declaration, the credit crunch is here. And you were talking about how, um, uh, you know, there are lots of stories now in the commercial real estate space of construction being curtailed, um, we, we very publicly uh, had the the Hilton Union Square hotel um, basically walk away from their loan they walked away from this massive property in downtown San Francisco um, and I think that's a you know it's a sign that it's it's getting harder for uh, builders uh, companies to get access to loans to do construction um, obviously all their input costs are going up from wages to supplies to services um, so we're it's looking like we're seeing, you know, canceled projects or diminished construction plans. And now we're beginning to see, you know, defaults like, like the Hilton there in San Francisco. These to me all kind of look like um, the relatively predictable impacts of the lag effects from Fed policy that's, you know, occurred over the past year. And as a lot of the folks on this program say, you know, they they operate with a lag of a year or more oftentimes. And so, you know, Fed started hiking rates last what March, um, and we're maybe now just really beginning to see the cracks in the economy that are happening under that higher cost of capital and you know of course the continued inflation that's continuing along here. Um, so I want to give you a chance to expound on this, but but I'm just curious: do you do you think this is a a manifestation of that lag effect?
1: It's exactly right. When you think about the lending world uh the only loan that's really more than 10 years is a 30-year mortgage so most are or just a few years out to call it 10. so before the the rise in interest rates in 2022 uh what was the lending environment it was money was essentially free and it didn't cost you more than 300 basis points 400 basis points at most to get a loan even if that was high yield so when you go vertical in one year like we did over the past, uh, call it 15 months now to the point you made about uh, starting in March with the rate hikes. Well, any loan that's coming due this year is having to be repriced at a much higher interest rate than the loan that is maturing. And when your interest expense, you're paying 3%, uh, you don't need much cash flow in order to service that. And if you, even if you didn't have cash flow, uh, there was enough investors out there that would be willing to refinance and kick the can until you did achieve profitability and free cash flow. Well, now you're in this new interest rate environment and not everyone can service their debt with this new higher rate world. So even before Silicon Valley Bank uh, collapsed, banks had already started the process of realizing this and saying, well, our customers out there, uh, can they serve, can they service their debt in this new rate world? Well, yeah, some can but some can't and lending standards were tightening pretty aggressively before svb went down to the point where if you don't include COVID, the standards were the tightest since uh 2009 and then of course you throw in the bank failures and standards tighten further but not only did standards tighten further the demand for loans has weakened too because well i can off i can afford a three percent interest rate but i can't afford an eight percent one so therefore Uh, The demand for loans has also softened. So we are in a credit crunch world where banks, which make up about 20 to 25% of the total lending market, are focused on shrinking their loan books, not expanding it. And particularly in commercial real estate, where depending on... Now, the interesting thing about Hilton and the hotel business is that if you own a hotel you have pricing power every day right as opposed to if it's an apartment building maybe it's a year or two lease if it's an office building it's could be three five even further ten years you're on a triple net lease it can be a 10-year and five-year arm so you're much further out so right. here you can is, change
0: your hotel rates overnight yeah
1: right so if if, if anybody can adjust to a higher rate environment it's a hotel if you have some but apparently, obviously, San Francisco in terms of the tourism and all that and, and, and the, the city issues, that can be a different story. But I think generally speaking, Reuters had a story yesterday and even the Hilton CEO, which was uh, who was on CNBC yesterday, talked about the dearth of capital for new construction. And that's where this credit crunch is, at least in real estate, is now establishing itself at. And it doesn't matter if you don't have to be in an office to be having pencils down. In, in real estate. You can be a multifamily project. You can be a hotel uh, developer, uh, as as the article that I tweeted talked about, in that your numbers just don't pencil out at an 8% interest rate relative to 3% uh, pre the rise in rates. Now it might, but you have to come up with more cash. And now the loan-to-value ratio that the bank is willing to accept is going to be much lower than you were budgeting. And numbers are just not um, coming together in this high-rate environment. So you do have construction that is that is in place already. Those will get done, whether it's hotel, multifamily, industrial, and so on. It's the new projects that are not getting greenlit because the economics have changed dramatically. And I think that that's what that article talked about. I hear stories all the time about multifamily projects while, are getting canceled. So there is a lot of multifamily construction that is in progress, and we've got a lot of supply coming over the next 12 to 18 months. But after that, there's going to be nothing.
0: Yeah, and uh, uh, I mean, it totally makes sense, right? I mean, the the, the cost of, of capital, as you just were outlining there, right? I mean, it's it's doubled in a lot of cases, right? Um, so not a huge surprise. And actually, this, this is intentional, right? I mean, this is what Jerome Powell has been trying to do since he started the hiking campaign, where he basically said, look, you know, my job is to bring down demand. Right. And and this is a knock on effect of bringing down demand with with higher cost of capital. Um, you, you're not it, it, it is is
1: backfiring sure. him. It, it is backfiring on him on the residential side because they they didn't appreciate and we're experiencing now the when you go vertical in interest rates after a long period of of, of fallow, essentially um, in the cost of capital you're having distortive impacts. You look at housing right now. Yeah, you're you're shrinking the demand to buy a home, but home prices are not coming down because you've trapped everyone in their house that has a mortgage under 5%, which makes up about 90% of the mortgage holders out there. And about 70% have a mortgage less than 4%. So by trapping them and resulting in less inventory, you've not seen the price response in homes that they were hoping would sort of cool down that market and mm-hmm. mitigate the impact of a, of a doubling in mortgage rates. That is like the definition of stagflation of a of, of modest pace of transactions and home prices that the last four months in a month, or mo- other, month over month basis are actually re-accelerated.
0: All right. So I was going to get to housing kind of near the end of this. I'm going to pull it up now to the front. <laughs> um, so uh, totally true, and interestingly, it's not not too dissimilar to how the Fed trapped the banks, um, where it got them totally conditioned uh, to, uh, you know, basically adding a ton of long-term safe money, good securities to their balance sheet, uh, and then it jacked up the uh, the interest rates, and then the value of those. Bond portfolios went down, and these banks, you know, are finding themselves sort of exposed uh, as a result of that, right? So, we've got all these people that are basically marooned in their homes. Um, really curious to think: is is that a um, will that clear out over time, or do you think it will be persistent? And the argument for it clearing out over time is that in the housing market, like many other uh, asset markets, prices are set at the margin. Right, And there will always be some organic amount of transactions that have to happen because of deaths, divorces, you know, job loss, moves, etc. cetera. Uh, and that eventually those, that percent of organic transactions will start resetting the new price in the market. It just may take more time. Um, do you agree with that or do you have a different outlook?
1: It, it will ease up as affordability continues to be difficult and credit availability gets tougher
0: right so, and it's to interrupt but i mean we're at the worst moment for both <laughs> new for new home buyers this article just came out this week that it has never been this unaffordable to buy a house for new home buyers and obviously there's there doesn't appear to be any immediate relief coming on on the cost of a mortgage so it's just it's very bad on both those metrics right now
1: right so to your point those that have to move are going to be the marginal buyer uh, those that want to move will be able to uh, take their time, uh, and, and even if they want, may not get a loan or just can't pay what the current prices are. Uh, now, we've obviously seen home builders sort of trying to step up. Uh, interestingly, where new home sales historically made up about 10% of the overall transaction market, now you're pushing like 30% uh, right. in certain markets. And but, sorry,
0: and, and, and they, they can be afford more afford to be more flexible on pricing, right? Because they just need to move the unit. They they don't have to live in it. So they're not trapped in a sub three mortgage, sub-four Right.
1: Mortgage. They, they, the builder can create incentives, they can buy down one's mortgage, they can uh, put discounts on the home. So yeah, but but that that doesn't work in all markets. Uh if you live in a, a in a dense suburban area, well, there's not just all this vacant land that a builder can come in and start building. Uh, homes. And if there is, then you know, it's an hour further out. So the, it's not like there's all this vacant land in the in the country that builders can come in and, and sort of solve this problem. Uh, there is more so in certain areas, uh, more so than others. Uh, and and getting back to, you know, you talked about monetary policy purposely trying to limit demand. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, from a consumer standpoint, and yes, from borrowing standpoint, but I don't think that they sort of gamed out uh, the dramatic impact on certain parts of the economy, particularly real estate, again, when things reprice at a much higher interest rate uh, than before and, and, and what that potentially leads to. Because that's the irony of this is that, is that because of new construction essentially getting halted, in a year or two when the existing projects are done, well, who's going right. to have pricing power all of a sudden? It's going to be the landlords and that's going to cause another inflationary wave to the upside. If you're trying to rent a property from an, uh, a, a multifamily perspective or you want to stay at a new hotel. Uh, well, since there's no new hotels being bought, uh, all of a sudden pricing power will remain with travel and entertainment. So there's just a lot of distorted factors here uh, that I don't think is as easy as, okay, the Fed, let's raise rates, we're gonna impact the demand when inflation will drop and everything's gonna be fine.
0: Yeah, interesting. So I think your, your, your descriptor is muddy, really, really does apply here. So um, let's get back to just sort of economic outlook for a moment. So, um, because I wanna ask you about, I wanna get back to housing in a second, but I wanna go through your outlook for recession what that may mean for the employment market, and then if those dominoes do fall, what impact they may have on housing. Um, Where are you in terms of a a recession outlook? Do you think we're gonna have one? If so, how severe?
1: So when getting to the Fed, raising interest rates 500 basis points in a year, uh, I I don't wanna say 100%, but I'll say 99% chances of recession. Okay. (laughs) Uh, The the extent of it though, uh, I think is in question. And interestingly, I believe whether it's a modest recession or a tough one will also depend on how the demographic impact is sort of spread out. And I mean that where the stock market goes from here is going to be an influencing factor on the depths of any recession, because if the stock market at some point, after it gets off you know, the euphoria of, okay, the Fed's done hiking interest rates and focuses more on they're going to stay high for a while and the Fed's still tricking their balance sheet at 100 billion a month, Uh, and we actually do get uh, a resumption of this bear market, you know, if all of a sudden, I'm not saying it happens, but this is something that I think is a a key part to answering your question, is if, and I emphasize if the S&P 500 goes to 3,000, you can be sure that this will be a deeper recession because that will have an immediate impact on high-end consumer spending that has been much less immune to the squeeze that lower- and middle-income people are feeling uh, because of their squeeze in their real wages. Uh, Another thing that maybe can uh, kind of bring the higher-end recession forward is where a lot of the job cuts happening. They're happening in white collar. Uh, So maybe if that picks up, uh, that can also... Ah, uh, create a a tougher uh, recession than 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 thought, but we can't separate 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 out what happens to the asset markets in trying to determine what the extent of this recession will be. Uh, they're intertwined. They're they're joined at the hip, just as monetary policy is uh, joined uh, between the economy, markets, and monetary policy. They're conjoined triplets.
0: <laughs> okay, we've got we've got conjoined Siamese triplets here um which one do you think does one lead the others
1: well let's
0: let's look at the two recessions pre-covid uh
1: it was a decline in asset prices that drove the recession tech prices fall the bubble pops capital spending collapses and that's what led to that recession wasn't a consumer-led recession it was a capex led recession then what we saw the next one home prices fall an asset home prices fall collateral values Uh, get hurt. And we know what happened from there. So the asset prices have been a driver of economic activity, since Greenspan created that environment. So if asset prices fall, well, then that will have a direct impact on the pace of economic activity.
0: Okay, so all right, let's then shuffle over then into asset prices. Um, So we've we've we had a bad year for the markets last year. Um, we could easily make the argument that asset prices were very distorted to the upside at the end of 2021, right? So, I mean, you could almost make an argument that just, look, they were going to have to correct just simply from a reversion to the mean type standpoint um, or, or a, a bubble excess a standpoint. Um, we've now seen the know, really robust start to the year. Uh, I mentioned the stats at the beginning: S and P up eleven, Nasdaq, you know, pushing thirty at this point in time. Um, Is there is there sustainable? Are there sustainable reasons for that strength in the market right now? And you know, looking with your crystal ball here, do you expect them to continue to power higher, or is this more? like a classic bear market rally where it's it's convincing everybody it's time to get back in the water um before the bear returns
1: well obviously ai has has, has given at least the nasdaq the most recent lift but I, or I the, still, the
0: ai narrative right i mean the we,
1: ai narrative the ai hype whatever you want to refer to it as the ai excitement whatever yeah. uh but gets back to my point early on this is to me all about the Fed is almost done hiking and I don't want to miss the rally. And what causes that attitude to stumble is the realization that we're not going back to zero rates and we're not going back at least for a while to aggressive QE. Those days are over for hopefully forever, probably not, but hopefully for a while. And that even if the Fed starts cutting rates into to respond to recession late this year into next year, maybe they cut to four, maybe they cut to three, but that's a much different environment than what we're used to here. And I think that when people realize that unlike prior recessions that most people in the markets have been accustomed to is this aggressive monetary response, the Fed and other central banks are really handcuffed here. Uh, in in eventually responding to that next recession. Now, even that said, if you go back to the 2000, uh, 2000 2002 bear market in the 07 to 09, uh, stocks continued to fall all throughout the rate cutting cycle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it wasn't until they were almost on cutting that the bear market ended. Ended, so right. I, I appreciate you know everyone excited. The Fed's pretty much done. They're going to pause in June. And therefore, it's a green light uh, because that's what everyone's been trained on. But I think when people see that higher for longer is itself a continuous form of tightening right? because of all the debt that needs to be refinanced every month, every quarter at much higher interest rates, I think this sort of intoxication with the Fed is going to save me and save the day, uh, I think is going to wear off.
0: Okay, and and why that outlook is important is because you're you're basically saying, look, asset prices have led us into some of the most recent recessions. and there may be an aha moment for the market where they say, oh, yeah, it's maybe not going to be as rosy as we thought and there may have to be a market downwards repricing. I want to get your your thoughts on that, but but real quick, I, I just want to sort of share an exasperation that, that I have. And I'm sure a lot of the viewers do and to see if maybe you have a good explanation for this, which is we have had <clears throat> the markets repeatedly being more optimistic about Fed policy and then having to revise their forecasts. Right. I mean, they were initially, you remember, not that long ago, they were predicting the first rate hike rate cuts in June. Right. And and Powell kept saying, it's not my plan. I'm not going to cut rates. And the market kept saying, nope, we don't believe you. Nope, we don't believe you. And you know, they've been shifting back and forth, you know, kind of all the beginning of this year, but now the market's beginning to realize, yeah, actually, you know what, maybe Powell's not going to not, not going to uh, cut it all this year. So higher for longer. We then had the banking uh, weakness, so the, you know, some of the biggest bank failures in history that is now forcing banks to tighten their lending standards further. You've already talked about that. And, and the Fed has said, hey, that actually acts as if there are you know, those act as additional rate hikes on the economy, right? The, those tightening bank lending standards. So it's kind of like, Hey, Powell is doing more than the market was planning. And then the banks are now doing more on top of that. And the market has had to react to that and keep repricing or keep re reshifting its expectations. And you would think because it's reshifting its expectations, it would be bringing asset prices down in response, but stocks have been going up all year. So I'm just curious, how do you square that circle? To me,
1: the Fed doesn't, the the market right now doesn't care about the rate cuts just yet. They just want the pain to stop in terms of the rise in interest rates uh, on the short end. So let's take this one step a time. They're celebrating the end of rate hikes. They think that that is an all clear. I think they'll be mistaken because QT is still going on in a pretty huge way. Uh, I mean, it's amazing how dismissive people are of, of 95 billion a month um, being sucked out. I do think that that reasserts itself just as they got excited about QE. I think they're gonna be worrying about QT. Uh, but I think that's the mentality. And and I think that people understand what Jay Powell, this is Jay Powell's last job. He's not gonna leave the Fed when his chairmanship comes up and he, he needs to get a, a job on Wall Street and therefore um, he needs to make everyone happy. He's only focused on his legacy and keeping inflation down.
0: He's playing It's so all book.
1: about not repeating the mistake of the 1970s when inflation went up, it came back down, the Fed backed off, it shot back up again inflation, then it came down because they had a further tighten, the Fed backed off, and then it accelerated for a third time. He does not want to see that acceleration in inflation after this come down. And that is what is most important. But putting this aside, let's just say inflation has a two-handle by the end of the year, which it very well could. But where does it settle out at next year? And if it's not going back to one to 2%, then I'm sorry, everyone, we're going to have to live with higher rates. Maybe they're lower than where they are now, but they're going to be higher than what we're used to. And this gets back to a really important thing that we have to focus on is what level of real rates will the fed be okay with? I don't think a world of negative real rates, is any time we're gonna see for many years, as long as Jay Powell is running this Fed. And that a half a percent, 1%, I think is where where we'll settle out at, but that means if inflation next year, not where it comes down this year, but where it sustainably ends up next year, which I think it'll be three to four next year, again, after falling probably below that uh, before it settles out. So that means a Fed funds rate of three, four, four and a half percent, on a sustainable basis that is not an environment that we've seen for the last 15 years before 2022 so that is a different world everyone thinks that we're just going back to this 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 we're going back to high school here uh and but we're not going back to high school again high school's over
0: all right so uh so glory days are are over right uh, it's like an old Springsteen song, we're just gonna reminisce about them. Um, So look, Peter, if I I told you before all this craziness happened, right? Let's say say 2019 even, right? Before pandemic hit was in people's eyes. And the economy was habituated, one might say addicted to close to ZERP policy. And I told you, Peter, you know what? The Fed's gonna take the Fed funds rate to five and it's going to hold real interest rates positive, you know, for years afterwards. Um, What would you have thought would have happened to the economy? Um, And I asked that in in the mind with, you know, how much of the economy could survive that persistently, right? We've got the stat of what 20% of companies or were zombie companies back when credit was cheap, right? I mean, are you expecting kind of a decimation of that whole, you know, cohort of, of corporate America?
1: Well, actually, I, I think what's happening now is, is how it was supposed to play out in the sense of, I had somebody actually really kind of, I was talking to somebody over the weekend about this. They're like, how is, how is the US economy still standing? How right. hasn't it not blown up yet with all this debt and this sharp rise in interest rates? And I said, because it doesn't affect us all at the same time. If, if I have a 30 year mortgage and no other debt, it's not affecting me. Now, if I have, if I, if I'm a big company and I've turned out my, termed out my debt, my debt to 2025, 2026, it doesn't yet affect me. It's affecting the person who's got a 10 year arm. Who's coming due this year. Right. May not come due in June. Maybe it's coming in due in November. So they're not affected yet, but they're going to be affected in five months. It's affecting those that didn't hedge out their floating rate debt. It's affecting those that have debt coming due this year, as we talked about, Uh, that's who it is affecting. But as time progresses, it affects more and more people. It affects more and more businesses. So the cumulative effect doesn't change. It's just happening at a more spread out time. That's why this can be more of an economic malaise as it's gonna take time for the economy to acclimate to this new rate environment. We need more equity. Banks are asking for more equity. Investors are gonna ask for more equity and less debt because of that higher cost of debt. And this takes time. It's not a bottom economy. It's not a a no landing, soft landing situation. This is gonna play out over time. And I think people just have to be more patient and understand that this is a different economic situation than what they're used to over the past 20 years.
0: Okay. So it sounds like you're saying it's going to be more of a grind as opposed to a sharp event. Is it a grind kind of downwards for the next couple of years? Is it a grind sideways? Is it a upward grind? I mean, how how do you see it?
1: Well, it it can be the the initial ground grind down, and then we sort of settle out, you know, in in a lower growth type of environment. And, you know, one thing to add to that, I talked about businesses and households. But the U.S. government, too, here, because higher rates for longer has its own sucking sound of liquidity out of the private sector. The U.S. government is crowding out the private sector in terms of funding because people are taking their money out of banks and sticking it into treasuries. Mm -hmm. And as time goes on, they will continue to do that. And it won't be just out of banks into treasuries. It'll be out of other assets as well. So this crowding out effect as US debts and deficits continue to rise, and if the Fed keeps rates higher for a while, the government has more and more of an appetite for your money to finance themselves, which means less money for the private sector, which has its own depressing effect on economic activity. Yep. So to me, this is not a, this is it gonna be a sharp landing or a soft landing? It's how elongated could this situation potentially last?
0: Yeah, I, I almost think of it, as like a like a burrowing, you know, the plane isn't coming down and landing soft or hard. It's kind of just getting on the ground and just kind of just grinding, you know, along as time goes on. Um, but but what you just mentioned there, getting back to kind of the main point, is you know that's not that's not uh, conducive of higher financial asset prices both if the economy is, is going through a slow grind, and also if the government is stealing more liquidity that would, would otherwise be going into the private space. So um, you, again, you talked about kind of uh, asset price declines leading recessions. Um, I guess you already said you put a 99.9% probability on some, some type of recession this year. So I, I guess we do have that answer. And, and that recession uh,
1: will be because of the higher cost of capital. The direction of asset prices from here will determine the extent of that economic slowdown.
0: Got it. Okay. Which then brings to my next question, which is, so what is your outlook for the markets? At least let's say for, for H2.
1: So I think that, um, it, it, you know, right now we have two stock markets. We have, you know, the top 10 stocks and then we have everything else.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so what the stock market does is, is obviously very difficult. I think that, you know, I, at least in the S&P, 19 times earnings for the environment that I'm talking about doesn't seem very attractive to me. Uh, now, that said, the other the rest of the markets, the 490 ish stocks and the, the 2000 and the Russell uh, small cap index, you know, there's a lot of value being created there. So uh, I, I, I think that this this growth value sort of differentiation that really exploded to the benefit of growth uh, over the many years. Outside of uh, where in 2022 we sort of reversed that, but then mm-hmm. growth is now reaccelerating its value. I, I think that the, the va- value uh, relative to growth has has more legs than just one year, and that I think once this sort of hype in AI calms down, and yes, it's very exciting, and yes, it's going to do transformational things. Um, you know, AI has been around since the 1950s, and this new iteration is exciting, like I said, but it's not necessarily something new. It's going to be great for NVIDIA because they have a dominant presence in uh, chipsets for this uh, and and some others. But uh, I think the market's just going to be very choppy and directionless for a while. And just as the economy can have sort of a, a malaise for multi-year period, so can markets. But that doesn't mean that there's not opportunities uh, out there uh, with a lot of cheap stuff, which I like. I also think that the uh, uh, that we are sort of set up for outperformance with international stocks, which have been just terrible relative to the U- U.S. stocks over the the past ten years. Uh, I'm particularly bullish on Asian markets, uh, putting aside the China-U.S. Mm-hmm. battle every day and the authoritarian government there. You know, there, the China's economy is reopened. This is 17% of the world's population that was closed for three years. and But there are ways of playing that reopening. And it doesn't have to be China. It can be Japan is going to be a major beneficiary. And the Japanese stock markets at a 33-year high. We're long Japan. We're bullish on Japan. We think that can continue to work. Uh, also bullish on Singapore. Also bullish on Vietnam. Uh, I think the Asian region is going to be the most exciting marketplace to uh, invest in when looking out over the, the following uh, five to 10 years. Now, you don't necessarily have to buy... Uh, an Asian stock to do that. You can buy U.S. companies that have a lot of exposure there. Um, and I still like energy stocks. I think that- And uh,
0: sorry, can you just give an example of one for folks?
1: Uh, I like the European ones like BP and uh, Shell. Uh, okay. I also like Canadian Natural Resources. Oh,
0: I'm sorry. Um, that's great on energy. I meant the big U.S. stocks that are heavy Asian exposure.
1: Oh, um, so I, I, I'm very bullish on Macau and we're along Las Vegas Sands. Uh, now all of the businesses in Asia, between Singapore and and Macau, uh, Melco too is another one that uh, that I like that trades in the U.S. Big presence in Macau. Uh, they just opened up the the, the basically a uh, uh, Las Vegas of Europe uh, of a new casino in Cyprus, which is a, a large uh, casino hotel there as well. And they have a casino in the Philippines. So I think that that is pretty cheap stock. And uh, you look at the Macau numbers, and it tells you that um, it's not just mainland China that wants to bust out. Uh, I think that over time, they're going to get a lot more uh, international tourists and Macau is uh, going to reassert itself as the, uh, the Vegas of Asia.
0: Got it. All right. Sorry, I interrupted you. You were you were okay. going on the, uh, in energy and some of the other sectors you like too. Uh,
1: yeah. So uh, energy stocks, I think that there's more to this. Uh, and if we get to the point where the Fed's cutting interest rates, uh, I think the dollar is going to get sacrificed in that kind of environment. It's going to re-accelerate inflationary trends and oil is going above $100 in that scenario. Uh, Natural gas, when it's $2 in the U.S., uh, I think that that's a buy in some of the uh, large uh, E&P companies in the U.S. like EQT and Southwestern look attractive. And I think natural gas has asserted itself as a very important uh, fuel for the world. And uh, U.S. pipeline companies, I think, are a beneficiary of that, particularly as the U.S. grows in importance in terms of exporting LNG.
0: Okay, Um, great. And thank you for being so specific here, this is great. Folks watching, um, two things. Uh, One, I'm trying to leave a little bit of time here to take some audience questions. So if you have questions for Peter, ask them there in the live chat and I'll do my best to pull a few up here. Um, Also, if you like this live format, uh, we don't do it all that often. Um, When I do do it, I always think, oh, we should do it more often. If you like it, please let me know in the chat. And if if there's enough positive feedback for it, we'll try to do it more often going forward. So Peter, I mean, as a capital manager, um, uh, I I got to imagine this is a bit of a challenging time, right? Uh, You've got a lot of euphoria. I'm going to say euphoria. You don't have to agree, but euphoria right now that is crammed into a very small or a very, very small number of stocks, yet still a very big part of the market and and one that influences the price of the major indices. Um, So you've got that going on, but then you have, you know, all of the the macro data that we talked about, the recession concerns, et cetera, right? So um, it sounds like there are there, there are parts of the market that have corrected enough where you're seeing good value or, or value that's catching your interest, but then there's gotta be parts of the market where you're concerned that, I imagine you're concerned that, hey, this is pretty frothy and if this goes down, it could take you know a large chunk of the market value, you know, the indice market value down with it. How are you playing this? And I guess maybe first question is, is how what, what percent deployed are you like? Are are you are you um, you know, we just went through a tough year where I know a lot of capital managers were holding more cash than normal. Are, are you still taking that kind of approach or are you seeing enough value here that you're you're really kind of more aggressively buying?
1: No. And one of my strategies, I'm probably about um, half long equities uh, about 15 percent plus in in precious metals uh, owning some international bonds and some tips and and having some cash uh, i i think it, it's really difficult uh to be managing money here uh, especially when only a few things are are outperforming and, and and i think it's i think the when you try to figure out what type of investor you are it's if you if you suffer from fear of missing out then this environment is even more excruciating uh, because you find yourself making decision buying decisions and sell decisions just based on where the current momentum is you know fortunately for me i i don't suffer from that now that doesn't necessarily help me when people see okay you're not participating in certain things but I try not to get caught up in that. So a lot of it has to do with one's time horizon. And the shorter your time horizon is, the more difficult this market is. The longer your time horizon is, the more you can sort of ride through the, 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 the bipolar nature and mentality of investors, of wanting to go in to what worked so much for so long over the past 10 years thinking how that pattern is just going to repeat itself, you know, just a, a, a you know, reality check in, in some of the big cap tech stocks. I mean, outside of NVIDIA where they're seeing explosive growth I mean, Microsoft, Apple, Alphabet, I mean, these companies aren't really seeing much growth anymore. These are phenomenal companies, but with very high multiples and very little growth, uh, one has to ask themselves, is, is, is this where I'm going to get my return of substance over the next five to 10 years? These companies will still be around. They'll still be great, but where am I going to get that incremental return, particularly relative to the risk that I'm taking? Uh, so, but bottom line is, it's not easy.
0: Never, uh, it never is. But I, I got to imagine now is a, you know, on the challenging scale, it's it's closer to the more challenging side than not, given everything you just went through. And it's it's so so. One, I appreciate you sharing all that with us. Um, I, you know, I, I just got to ask because it's it's such fresh news. So, um, Apple just revealed its was it Apple Vision Plus, the new VR headset, yesterday. Um, and uh, I, I honestly, I, I didn't really watch my. So I don't really have a very informed opinion. Um, I've seen you know, social media kind of eviscerate <laughs> you know, the the look of the product and whatnot. And there's a lot of dead bodies you know uh, on the road to uh, VR and, and, and AR. Um, maybe this will be the one that cracks the code or whatever. But I did see sort of a joke of somebody wearing the, the headset and looking kind of silly, and somebody saying, "Hey, you know, don't laugh." Like, you know, all of our retirements are hinging on this being successful because so many people obviously are are, are Apple stock owners right now. Um, but I'm just curious if you have any I- I- any thoughts about that. Is is are are we potentially sort of witnessing the the apex moment or the jump to shark moment where the the company that could do no wrong. Is, is, you know, it, it, its next uh, next hyped product may be the one that, that doesn't become the next iPhone.
1: Well, that's the thing. That the beauty of the iPhone is that it became this mass market product that people use every day, all day. Uh, a VR headset is not going to be a mass market product that people are necessarily going to use every day, all day. Uh, so, I, I at least right now. May be down the road, so I I think that um, I think that is one of the issues. But it's very difficult to come up with a product that's mass market that everyone needs every day. Oh, absolutely, comes along like once in many generations. So to make that a repeatable thing is almost impossible, and I see this being a point where Apple's just not the same growth company as it once was. It's got a phenomenal existing franchise. And yes, they're selling other things like the iPad and and the, and the watch, which Your are watch, new yeah. and, and some people have it, but some people don't. But those aren't necessarily uh, the same type of, of, of product that the iPhone was and that the goggles, particularly at the $3,000 price point, I mean, that's just a no-go in, in terms of creating a mass market product. Now, I know over time it'll get cheaper, it'll get better, but you know right now, to me, it's just a a video game. And yeah, maybe I guess people will watch TV on their their virtual reality headset instead of actually looking at a TV? Maybe so. I don't know. We'll have to see. But um, it's going to be a long time before this becomes, I think, a major contributor to the revenue of Apple.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, we'll see. And I don't know enough to really opine intelligently. I do, looking at some of their featured use cases of the person who's Kind of minority report-wise, you know, moving spreadsheets and kind of managing their their professional life uh, in augmented reality. There, we, I'm we, just we, thinking
1: we could like, get there, absolutely. Oh, oh we, uh, we could
0: get there, and could yeah. you be more productive? Sure. I'm just thinking I'm one of the work from home people, right? And I already have so much blowback from my family about my lack of boundaries between work and personal life. And if I'm sitting there, you know, in the kitchen doing, this, can
1: you imagine your whole family <laughs> sitting at dinner while wearing goggles? Uh, I don't think that's gonna happen maybe we'll yeah kids, I, I,
0: yeah I don't know I, I don't know and yeah we we already talk about how lost kids are on their phones um, anyways I, I don't want to just hijack the conversation on that um let me pull a couple of questions here um, there's a several on this one, so let me just pull it up um, what impact do you expect from the student loan repayment uh, starting uh, by the end of August? Um, which is part of the the debt ceiling deal that just got struck.
1: So it's a good question because there are some interesting uh, things out there that that are going to flow through the economy uh, with respect to the consumer. I've seen numbers that consumers um, uh, student debt pay downs are going to cost about five billion a month to call it 60 billion annualized. Uh, We've cut off the extended SNAP benefits. That's going to be about 50 billion a month. So we're going to take 100 billion away from uh, lower end, well, um, I shouldn't say lower end because people are paying back their student loans. It could be medical school students. That can be higher end. Uh, so that's about 100 billion. But look, look, we we have five trillion dollars of uh, money market funds that are now getting four percent, five percent. That's 200 billion dollars of extra income that people didn't have uh, a couple of years ago. So there's some. We got There, there are multiple flows here in and out uh, into consumer pockets. But specifically to the question, of student loans that's going to be about $5 billion a month.
0: Okay. And what do you expect from that? I mean, uh, there's and maybe I'll, I'll conflate this with another question, which is um, sometimes talking to all the experts on this channel, um, we will sometimes look at data and say, you know what? Is the only thing that really matters, just liquidity. <laughs> and when it's going up, prices well, go up, when it goes down, prices go down. Are things like the student loan repayment, and I'm going to mention the TGA, because I meant to mention that earlier, the 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 forced TGA refill that's now going to happen over the next couple of months. Could those potentially tip liquidity so much to the negative that it actually matters from an asset standpoint?
1: Well, the student loan and the SNAP program, that hundred billion is coming out of people's pockets that are obviously less well off. Right. The, but the but that's billion. also
0: directly impacting velocity of money though, right? It's yeah. just less dollars getting spent, right?
1: For sure you know, the 200 million, $200 billion of extra in- interest income is obviously helping those that have the most amount of savings. And a lot of them aren't necessarily going to spend more because they have some more interest income. Uh, so there could be a, a net negative effect if you combine the actual uh, spending impact that it has. With respect to TGA, it's, it, it's a combination of things. It's the U.S. government that from now until the end of its fiscal year, I think is the end of September, uh, there's another 600 billion of of a budget deficit that needs to be financed then plus the call it five or 600 billion that needs to be refilled in TGA. So there you get about a trillion. Then you have a hundred billion a month that the Fed is essentially selling. So this gets my point earlier about the U.S. government, potentially crowding out the private sector Mm -hmm. and they are becoming a bigger presence in the financing room that needs your dollars. And from a liquidity standpoint, yeah, more money is going into the public sector, uh, not to finance immediate spending, uh, just to finance the ongoing business of running the government. And, um, that is going to create, yes, a liquidity suck of some sort, uh, I know everyone's trying to figure out what the impact is, uh, but there's going to be an impact. And just getting back to you know, QE, QT, markets love QE. And look what the markets did under QE. Are we going to be so blind to think that QT is not going to matter for us?
0: Well, look, there, there are a number of folks that I talked to, I'm going to go back to the lag effect for a second, that they say, look, deflation or inflation kind of taking care of itself here at this point. Um, meaning that if the Fed just kind of stop now, which they may do at the next meeting, right? Like that—that—that that, that we've talked about it, sort of being like a bull elephant, right? That's it, it, been mortally wounded, right? It's going to trample around for a long time before it kills over, but it's—it's it's, the fatal blow has already been delivered, and it's—it's it's, yes, it's going to tramp around for a while, but we know it's going to die. Um, uh, and one of their concerns is you know, the lag effects as we talked about may just be hitting now, right? And so that that pain that, that Powell predicted we would see, maybe a lot of that's still ahead of us here, even if they do nothing additionally from here, yet they're still continuing to do QT and they still could tighten. I mean, the door is open for them to tighten or to pause and then tighten again if they feel they need to. So there are some concerns that the Fed has been maybe taking, they've been over tightening now and, and they're potentially making a much deeper and more protracted recession than might otherwise be needed. Um, do you have an opinion on that?
1: I think it's, it's the Fed's mistake really started when obviously they were too easy for too long. Yeah. But I had more of an issue of not where the Fed was eventually going to get the Fed funds rate, but the rapidity at which they decided to get there. Yep. And get, getting to my point about this interest rate shock therapy yep. was more of the problem. Because to me, Negative real rates, QE have done an enormous amount of damage uh, to the to the global economy, negative rates for, for for a while now. And having positive real interest rates is a long-term good thing. So yeah. if I'm I right, don't interrupt,
0: but we, we actually, as of the last hike, right, we have positive real interest rates for the first time in how long? I mean, a long right. time.
1: <laughs> so that that's why, like I said, like a more I have a more of a problem with the, the the speed at which they raised, rather than where their ultimate destination was going to be.
0: Mm-hmm. But but I guess my question is is do you because of the rapidity, and the, the you said interest rate shock. I guess people are arguing we haven't felt the full force of the shockwave yet,
1: well, <laughs> and yet QT is still the,
0: continuing. The, the, the yeah. credit
1: has only begun. We, we've had we've had a, a two part economy. One pre SVB collapse, and we've just started the post svb collapse world and that is a world that where credit was already tightening that tightening is going to accelerate and this has only just begun
0: okay so i'm going to put words in your mouth but you what i kind of hear you're saying is is batten down the hatches and yes you're you're not predicting perhaps a violent you know market crash or a violent uh you know
1: for death by a thousand cuts
0: Yeah. This is, this until, is the,
1: until we acclimate to this higher rate environment. Until we have more equity and we have less debt.
0: Yeah, this is that grinding burrowing that that we were sort of talking about earlier. Okay, uh, last question from the audience here, um, just because we're getting short on time. It's a question we already kind of touched on, uh, Peter. But there's just so many people asking this question. I'm I'm going to give you a chance to revisit it, which is: Will the housing market crash? Um, Maybe the right way to pose this question is: is you talked about how we have a lot of people that are trapped in these mortgages, and that was sort of an unintended consequence of, of what the Fed did in terms of their uh, hiking interest rates. How do, how do you see that resolving? Um, and let's let's take a two to three year outlook on this. Um, you know, do, 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 do the existing marginal transactions finally get to a true price discovery, or do we stay at a higher elevated level just because of the weird dynamics of current setup?
1: We, we, have, we have the definition of stagflation in the housing market. If you look at weekly uh, mortgage applications from the Mortgage Bankers Association, the purchase component is in a stone's throw away from falling to the lowest level, I believe, since 2011. So we've had quite a um, freeze on the pace of housing transactions. Now, that's for those that, that need a mortgage. Obviously, cash buyers don't fall into that category uh, and they've been spending and buying. And we know home builders uh, have been stepping into this breach. So we've had a pretty notable reaction in the ho- housing market already. I think the question goes to also what happens to price and what you said, like what is going to be that clearing price? Uh, and it's a really tough question to answer because of how yeah. distorted.
0: Things said, are, it's hard to, hard to interrupt, but, but I think the question that, that folks are really asking here, so if you can address it in your answer is, for the folks that thought housing prices got to crazy levels kind of pre-pandemic, and then they've just gone bananas, right? Um, and now, you know not only do we still have pretty high, you know prices still near kind of records, but now the cost of financing has gone way up. If I'm sitting around waiting for a better opportunity, because surely the housing market must correct at some point, am I going to be disappointed?
1: I I think you potentially could be disappointed that prices are not going to fall to an extent enough to really fully mitigate the doubling in mortgage rates. And and let's game this out. What happens if the Fed starts cutting interest rates? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean mortgage rates are going to fall if maybe the long end actually yields go up because people are worried about a fall in the dollar and that the Fed rate cuts are going to re-accelerate inflation and maybe the yield curve starts to steepen again uh or let's just say it does not let's just say that mortgage rates actually go down and that starts to open up some inventory people say you know what Uh, I can now get a mortgage rate that's not, mater- much, not much different than the house that I'm in. So I'm going to sell here to buy here. Maybe that can ease up and, and add to some of the supply that can maybe slow down the rise in home prices. But on the other hand, that person still needs to move somewhere and go find another home, which then creates its own demand. I, it's just, it's, it's, it's upside down here. And it's really, I think difficult to have a, a confident answer to, to that question.
0: Okay. Um, and, and look, uh, I've let you off the hook here, because we also do have housing specialists so we'll bring on here to really dive into this. But it's, it, it is, uh, it's muddy, as you've said. And, and I think in some ways that can be really infuriating, uh, particularly because I get the way that people look at it. And I, I got to be honest, I look at it a lot that way myself, which is that prices just got incredibly insane versus fundamentals. And then now, you know, uh, financing has gone Bananas and and surely just from the increase in mortgages alone, we should see a nice mathematical correction. But we're not, you know. If seventy no percent
1: of the people had mortgage rates above four instead of under four, uh, I you'd probably see more mobility and and more easing of prices.
0: Got it. So I, I assume that you would say so. Yeah, look at a country like Canada or the UK, where uh, you know they have like five year mortgages or mortgages have to be refinanced every five years. So basically every year you've got about a fifth of the housing stock that needs to be refinanced. I'm assuming you would expect to see a faster correction in those types of countries.
1: Yeah, I, you would You would think so, uh, for sure. Uh, but even in the UK, you haven't necessarily seen it just yet. Uh, I do think you're beginning to see it in Sweden. They also have, you know, feasted on on cheap money and, and having more adjustable rate stuff. So uh, I think there's more, vulnerability from affordability standpoint without question because there's not as many people sort of trapped in these low mortgages for a lengthy period of time
0: all right well i gotta leave it there um peter i could go on all day with you and i know there are a number of folks here that would love for us to, but you got to get back to to work thank you again for not only coming on the program and giving us so much uh of your expertise but for changing the plan, coming on to do it live. I know you had a couple of technical issues as well. I just really appreciate you soldiering through it. No, 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 like I said, I really appreciate you soldiering through everything to to come talk to us today. Um, For folks that have really enjoyed this discussion, would like to learn more about you and your work, follow you, where should they go? Uh,
1: Well, they can subscribe to uh, the book report. It's uh, actually bookreport.com, B-O-O-C-K report.com. Actually starting this week, I'm gonna be shifting over to Substack. And uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, I write daily. And then on the wealth management side, you can reach us at uh, you can go to our website at bleakly.com and learn more about us.
0: All right, fantastic. Um, Folks, please give uh, Peter a big thanks there in the live chat. Um, Just wrapping up, um, I just want to remind everybody um, (laughs) for the reasons we talk about every week, but particularly the reasons uh, that Peter mentioned here uh, in this Entire conversation, you know, it's a very muddy, very confusing time. He talked about the challenges that he has as an experienced capital allocator trying to figure out how to play this right now. So, um, if you're feeling, you know, overwhelmed by trying to figure out how to navigate your own wealth through this, again, highly recommend you do that under the guidance of a good professional financial advisor, one that takes into account all the macro issues that Peter and I talked about here. If you have a good one who's doing that for you already and then creating a personalized portfolio plan for you and then executing it for you, great, you should stick with them. But if you don't or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, um, then consider talking to one of the uh, financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. These are the guys you see come on the program with me every week. I uh, just set up one of those free consultations. Just go to Wealthion.com. I've got the URL right there at the bottom of the screen only takes a few seconds to fill out that form, schedule one of these free consultations. They don't cost anything. There's no commitment to work with these guys, just a public service they offer. Um, If you really enjoyed having Peter on, as I always do, I would like to see him come back on the program. Um, Please um, vote your support by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below. Peter, again, I can't thank you enough. These are always just wonderful conversations. Um, Thanks, Adam. Good luck with your navigations here and look forward to having you back on the program as soon as your schedule allows.
1: Thanks, and I very much appreciate uh, having me on.
0: All right, thanks so much. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.